The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aaronsmeely, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. There's one group of people who report that their mental health and workplace stress has gotten worse since the pandemic, and that is service and retail workers. In addition, higher numbers of people in service, client, patient services settings report toxic workplaces. And it's not a surprise if you've ever seen a viral video of someone just acting outrageously towards airline flight crew. Frontline workers and their mental health are crucial for all of us, not least employers. And our guest today is Anthony Sartori. He's someone who finished college and realized the problem he really wanted to look at was creating more mentally healthy workplaces, especially in the retail sector. It's a place where organizations might be more likely to overlook the mental health needs of their workers. And Sartori is aiming to change that with the nonprofit Evolving Minds. He joined me to speak about his passion for mental health in this overlooked sector, what a 10-minute meeting can do for mental health and well-being, And I started by asking him what path he saw for himself when he graduated from college in 2018. The path was really unknown, if I'm honest. I started working in a mental health treatment facility with youth and and families experiencing significant mental health challenges coming from the hospital, suicide attempts, going into residential. I honestly didn't know after graduating kind of where I was going to go. Why did you do that work? It's very intense work. I found my way there because it aligned with what I was looking for, which was non-traditional ways of working with mental health. So we integrated nature and art and music and dancing and mindfulness and meditation. And these were some of the things that were supporting my mental health and my mental health journey. And seeing that in that workplace, I was just like, I was drawn to it. Did you always want to work in mental health? Well, when I got to the University of Maryland as a freshman, I was completely undecided. So I found my way to mental health because I was kind of a cliche college student in the sense that freshman year, I became aware of significant mental health challenges internally. I was experiencing Mm. obsessive thoughts, compulsions, fears, panic attacks. And I had no tools, no language to understand what I was going through to cope with the severity of the suffering that I was experiencing in my entire formal education career of 20 plus years, I had never had one mental health class. I had never had one discussion with peers about mental health. And so throughout my lived experience and then starting to talk to others and see that it's a student 
mental health crisis across the campus. When you walk across campus, students aren't smiling. They're looking down. There isn't a lot of laughter. And starting to talk with my friends and and learning that, wow, every single person that I talk to about mental health, all of my friends, all of my fellow students, they had a story. That kind of inspired me, both my lived experience and talking with others and then seeing the systems or the structures, especially at the University of Maryland, that were preventing people from being able to access help. That led me to, I want to do this I want to be in the mental health field the rest of my life. And this is before the pandemic? Before the pandemic. What were some of the systems and structures that stuck out to you as being blockers? Ooh, so many. (laughs) Students often weren't aware where the counseling center was. Hmm. They weren't aware of the services, especially like freshmen and sophomores. The culture at the university, I think, doesn't always prioritize mental health. Things have changed. Mental health is now a strategic priority of the University of Maryland. Mm -hmm. But when I was a freshman, when I was a sophomore, I'm not sure if it was. Yeah. And so when students would reach out for help, you know, we had a campaign called hashtag 30 days too late. The reason why we had that campaign was because when students were in crisis, when they would reach out for help, they had to wait weeks and months to see a counselor. Mm -hmm. And by that time, it's often too late. Right. So you knew you wanted to work in mental health. Did you get your own diagnosis? I was told that I needed a diagnosis to be billed for insurance, which is another (laughs) conversation. I personally do not want to see myself as diagnosable, but at a time, I, I definitely could have been diagnosed with obsessive and compulsive disorder. The amount of obsessive thoughts and compulsions and fear that I had, the same stories, the same thought patterns, hours and hours each day for months and years, I definitely uh, could have been. Hmm. I'm so curious why you don't want to have a label or think of yourself as ill. Like, What does that mean to you? For me, and I'll speak from my lived experience, I never saw myself as ill. I was experiencing suffering and I was experiencing fear and panic, but I didn't want to be boxed in Mm -hmm. or limited. I think at that time, there was a time period where I remember I was in a class freshman year and students were giving a talk on obsessive and compulsive disorder. And I was sitting in the back of the room and they were showing all the symptoms. And I was like, could that be me? You know, could that be what I'm going through? And it led, knowing that OCD existed, led me to a path and a self-discovery of of really trying to work with my mind and my body and my fears. I want to talk about your work with retail workers and how you got to that place, because it felt like it wasn't like you set out to create new models of support and training at work for people who work in retail. But you did start a nonprofit, is that right, when you graduated? Yes. Why? How? You know, I founded Evolving Minds in May of 2020, right when the pandemic was starting. And I was also working in a grocery store part-time at Mom's Organic Market here in Baltimore City, Maryland. And 
It just so happened that I was going through the pandemic as both a retail worker, the lived experience of working in retail, and then also building and launching Evolving Minds. Mm-hmm. What was Evolving Minds' purpose? Well, our mission is to create a culture of care. And really, our purpose is connection. So we focus on building meaningful social connections and relationships and a sense of community and culture, both within working with students and, and workplaces. So, Anthony, I'd love for you to tell us really the theory of change or the operating model for evolving minds and why you believe it has the power and why it's proven to have the power to improve mental well-being for retail workers. So Connected Cultures is our workplace mental health and well-being training, and it has five essential components for building a healthy and sustainable work environment. The first essential ingredient is utilizing the U.S. Surgeon General's workplace mental health and well-being framework as a leadership tool, teaching leaders within the organization to better understand what the essentials of mental health and well-being in the workplace are, such as connection and community, which is often viewed as a soft skill, but it's essential. Mm -hmm. The second key component is a work health survey. We utilize the Mental Health America, which can be Googled and it's accessible online, to better understand the health of the organization. So how are people doing internally in terms of their mental health and well-being? What is the culture like? Our third essential ingredient is a work culture curriculum. Hmm. We have a mindfulness-based curriculum that focuses on four themes that we've found to be really impactful for workers. Focus, because seven in 10 workers have difficulty concentrating. Self-awareness, skills that reduce stress, stress reduction, and common humanity, empathy, building empathy. Then we also have resilience skills, a resilience curriculum. And I'd like to share these because they're not often things we would think about practicing in a work environment as a community, but our curriculum is gratitude. What are you grateful for? Joy. What brings you joy? Goodness. Where do you see goodness in the world? Hope. What gives you hope? curiosity, inspiration, peace, and love. Yes, we have workplaces that are practicing who or what do you love. We then identify with the team and the organization, what are some pain points internally that you want to focus on from the U.S. Surgeon General Framework? So maybe that's enabling adequate rest or respecting the boundaries between work and non-work time or fostering collaboration and teamwork. And we teach the team and the workers, how to implement those skills in the culture building meeting. This is our fourth main ingredient. And this is, if you can have one takeaway from this, this is it. 20 minutes weekly or biweekly where it's protected, intentional time and space devoted to building culture. That's it. It's very powerful. That's where team members practice those work culture skills. And the fifth main ingredient, which is sustainability and leads to the long-term transformation, preventing burnout, retaining workers, attracting people to the organization, is a resilience team. The resilience team is made up of internal culture champions that lead the skills, evolve the curriculum and the program. And they meet monthly, 
to advance the connected cultures framework within that workplace. So all of that together is how we've figured out how to build a people first work culture that doesn't just value people's skill sets, but really sees them and creates that deep sense of belonging. Love. Wow. This is going to sound like a challenging question, but I don't mean it that way. Like, what did you feel that you could do differently as a young person than Mm. a million other nonprofits couldn't? (laughs) Everything. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No, I think, what could I do differently? Yeah, with evolving minds. Like, what was different and why did it need to be created in this world? Well, I founded Evolving Minds at the age of 24. And I think as a young person, I do have a unique experience of understanding Gen Z, but also millennials and what's important to them, especially in a workplace. And from my experience of working in the grocery store at Moms, working with educators and teachers throughout the pandemic, as well as nonprofits, I started to see in many ways that work wasn't designed to support our mental health and well being. And I appreciate my younger youth perspective because it was very critical of the way, and it still is, of the ways things have been designed. What was it about your experience on the floor at mom that made you realize there was such a gap here? Every shift. Every every shift. shift, I worked eight, 10, 12 hour shifts. And I really, because I studied psychology at the University of Maryland, I just observed in everything. There are so many things that I think don't support people's mental health and well-being in the grocery store. For example, managers would be moved around every three months to a different store. Hmm. So you're building this relationship, this manager is your secure base, and then all of a sudden, without warning, they're gone. There's no closing ceremony. There's no goodbye party. There's an email At the end of the week, they're at a different store. Hmm. During a pandemic where there's already so much instability, that practice is destructive. And there are many, many practices that go on internally. So I worked with the managers. I trained 20 of them in our workplace mental health and well-being model. And in one of our last meetings where we were talking about why this program ultimately failed because the systems and structures were too great. We couldn't get people together for just 10 minutes to connect because we had to stock and do all the other tasks in the store. But one of the managers, he was talking in the meeting and shared how one of the corporate team members came into the store and they had a checklist and they were walking around with the checklist going through, you know, making sure that all the operational things were happening in the store. And the manager decided to look at the checklist and see what was on it. Mm-hmm. And nowhere on that checklist did it say, how is the team doing? How's the mental health and well-being of the team members? <laughs> you know, <sighs> because all on that checklist was just operational things. I'm really curious to come back to the notion of time. You said that one of the mm-hmm. things that major pilot, and I'd love to hear more in detail about the pilot, what failed was that there wasn't time to get Mm. everyone together. Talk about time in a shift environment and how that is bad for mental health. Well, there was a meeting 
where I was explaining the importance of building culture and community and the time that's needed for that. I was with the general manager of the store, assistant general manager, other managers, and I was explaining the benefits of why slowing down is important, enabling adequate rest, fostering collaboration and teamwork, why those will prevent burnout and, and retain people. And our store was a revolving door in and out each week, new hiring, new people. Some days there were 15 callouts in a day. People calling out sick. Calling out, they can't come in, sick, mental health concerns. And the manager pulled out a piece of paper as I was talking, he started to calculate on the piece of paper because I was trying to get them to just have 10 minute meetings where we could build connection and community. And the manager starts to calculate how many lost labor minutes mm. that will be. Mm -hmm. 400 minutes maybe if we have the full team of 15. And fundamentally in the retail environment, labor and time, which is equated with productivity, always comes first. That's how it's been designed. That's how the system works. So there was this constant pressure that we experienced in the store every day, every minute, where if you weren't doing something, right. then why weren't you doing something? Because we're currently paying you. I don't pay you to stand work. around. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And the pressure, the operational pressure fueled by the internal, you know, revenue generating model, that pressure was the greatest factor for my own personal burnout, but also you could see its effect across the store. One of the things that you said is fostering community. Why is it especially important in a retail environment for mental health to create community? The first thing to acknowledge in retail is there's often no time or space for community and connection. So number one, there isn't any. <laughs> and that makes it even more essential <laughs> to build it in. From my experience in the teams that I work with, the people that I work with that I cared about so much, many of them were very people-oriented, community-based people. We had artists in our store. We had painters. We had playwrights. We had actors. We had metalsmiths. We had writers, you know, and there wasn't a time or space for us to really intentionally get to know one another. And it's an essential need, as we know, social connection. But I also think the intensity of retail, the pace of the work, really, we can make a case that it's even more important for us to be slowing down and connecting. Retail is often seen as people come and go. The expectation is that people won't stay there in that environment very long. Right. But I think if, if we change that and we built in community and connection and culture, people would stay. People would not be cycling in and out. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. 
On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. You did manage to talk the grocery store into doing a pilot with you. <laughs> How? What did they respond to and what made them say yes? Well, I had a good friend that worked in Mom's Organic Market who I was able to pitch the program and talk about the benefits and, and what we're doing. So it was a relationship. It was a, a, a very meaningful relationship where there was a lot of trust because no one has really done something like this before in terms of integrating mindfulness, you know, resilience-based skills, community building skills into the, the grocery store. So we were taking a, a risk together and... I put together a very long and lengthy proposal. I outlined the entire pilot. And it was through that that we just hit the ground running because moms, the grocery store, they do care about their people. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with all throughout the, the organization. And I think they had mindfulness within their corporate environment. But I solved a fundamental need for them, which is how do we bring this to the workers on the ground? How do you bring mindfulness to a retail environment? Well, we're figuring that out still. <laughs> and we're about to pilot our model with a cafe and restaurant here in Baltimore City in the fall, which I'm really excited about. It's a process and it involves really a comprehensive investment. So number one, we need to have time and space to build culture and community. So 20 minutes weekly or biweekly where the entire team is coming together to connect. Mm. We have to train a core group of leaders within that retail environment to lead skills within that culture building meeting, not just management, but non-management, hourly workers, peers is critical mm. for group buy-in. And then we also have to learn work culture skills and we use the Surgeon General's framework to identify key areas of burnout or what's causing harm within the work environment and then empower the team to build skills that they implement in that work environment. So it's not just what are we grateful for team and oh, sorry, we can't pay you a living wage. It's what are we grateful for team? And, you know, we're paying you a living wage because we're practicing this skill, which is really important to creating a holistic, healthy work environment. So I think I would argue that the return on investment, if I'm speaking in the business lingo, is it may seem like a lot, but for the amount of operational 
time, money that is saved when you retain people, it is uh, <laughs> critical. Your website has a lot of really impressive metrics on how your programs have helped. And I'd love you to share a couple that you think sure. might be relevant, you know, just to give the audience a really, you know, because you think 20 minutes, that's not very much mm-hmm. a week and they're going to be mine. Like, I don't understand, you know, what does this actually do? And I'd love you to share with that. Well, 20 minutes a week is is 52 times more a year that people are are building connection <laughs> and fostering collaboration. And most work environments and workplaces might have like quarterly or yearly staff mm-hmm. appreciation or team building events. So I think the fact that we're doing it as often that we are is why we saw a 57% reduction in call-outs within the first two months. It's why our model has shown over a 30% reduction in symptoms of depression, anxiety, and stress. Those are incredible numbers. I mean, are there other things that you're doing to help achieve those numbers? Absolutely. We're identifying what's causing harm in the work environment and trying to change <laughs> yeah. that, that stress. One of the Surgeon General's basic fundamental elements, though, of workplace wellness and mental health is paying people a living wage, mm. treating them with equity. Mm-hmm. How does your vision encompass these deep structural changes that probably yep. aren't happening at all the organizations yeah. you'd be working with? Well, this is why we unionized <laughs> at Moms, and we won unionization. So there is that way to foster change in the work environment. I will say that the reason why our, our model has been successful in some ways is that it does empower all leaders across the organization to build skills. Hmm. So for example, one of our nonprofit partners at Our Minds Matter they built a skill called resilience roundtables where their resilience ambassadors led discussions as a team and an organization around workload and work pace, how the workload was unmanageable, how the work pace was too intense, even with more capacity and staff. They had discussions about dominant culture norms as an organization. They were realized that they weren't eating lunch or that they weren't taking time for lunch. They weren't taking time off for PTO. They saw people that left and and wondered how could we have conversations about workplace compensation. So they had those conversations together as a group. And I think that's pretty radical in many ways to have these conversations as an organization. It's not being led by the executive director or HR. It's Mm -hmm. being led by people in the organization who notice a problem, they build a skill, they practice it together. It leads to a greater outcome for the organization. And then they can push for systemic change. Yes. Yeah. And I think through having those conversations as a group, as an organization, they are reimagining their workplace. So they are changing that their culture to be aligned with what's important to them, which ultimately, yes, as you were saying, is 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 changing systems to be more humane and, and really people first. When you look at unionization movements across retail, is mental health a piece of the platforms? Hmm. I'm thinking of the Starbucks push and Amazon pushes, you know, when you read about a lot of the culture of hourly workers at Amazon, mm-hmm. it, it really defies most of the principles of the Surgeon General's platform yeah, and framework. Yeah. 
no time to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Well, I will say when my coworkers told me about having panic attacks in the bathroom or when my coworkers didn't feel safe in the kitchen because things in the kitchen weren't changing when they said that they needed, you know, support. Mm-hmm. When people are just burned into the ground and we've gone through this trauma, this collective trauma, and you have to wait two years until you get PTO. The wage isn't a living wage. It, it It's all interconnected. It's the wage, the work environment. It all impacts our mental health and well-being. And so I'm not sure, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not sure if that's a underlying, but I I do think it's a huge part because workers across industries are in crisis and and it is a workplace mental health crisis that we're facing. And a big result of that, which unions seek to change is, is the workplace conditions. Yes. There's such a level of privilege. I'm reflecting, mm. you know, listening to you. And I, I recently interviewed a teacher and I, I've been speaking to a couple teachers I know. You know, those of us who have white collar jobs mm-hmm. at places like Google, you know, where we have endless time to sit around and talk and we actually, you know, Google workers get paid to have time just to think, right? Right. And endless benefits, free food. <laughs> yeah. Yep. The the gap in privilege is so mm. stark. Mm-hmm. And of course it has huge impacts on mental health. Yeah. And I guess my question is like, what do you want people like me to know? Well, I think we should know that workplace inequity is ubiquitous across America. One third of workers make $15 an hour or less. Millions of people don't have enough money to meet basic human needs. Home, food, childcare. Mm-hmm. Only 23% of workers have access to paid family leave. Many women have to go back to work right after giving birth. A big part of our, our mission is to disrupt workplace inequality because it's everywhere. When you go into Google, when you go into any of these larger organizations, and you look around and you see who has power and who doesn't, who's sitting behind the desk, who's the security guard, it it becomes very clear that that inequity is a big driving force of the mental health crisis. Uh, It is something that we seek to change. It's a big part of our mission at Evolving Minds. What's your vision for the organization? Our vision is to, over the next 10 years, to empower people with tools and techniques to build culture and community and connection in in workplaces, mostly nonprofits, social impact organizations, retail work environments. About 10 years from now, so as we start getting the ball rolling in that way, we'll launch our advocacy wing, which Mm. will be solely focused on disrupting workplace inequality. And many, many decades from now, we hope to fund ideas, nonprofits, initiatives that advance social connection and community. So that's our 40-year vision. Ultimately, it's to build caring work cultures. In a lot of ways, we do have to be disruptive in, in the current working world that we live in. Indeed. Do you yourself feel a lot of pressure to achieve this? You've set these goals. They're big (laughs) goals. (laughs) 
I think at times I feel more doubt than pressure. Hmm. If you go into, let's say, a retail work environment, I won't name any names here, but you know, let's say you, you walk in and you just watch and observe and see that workplace. You think, how can we change this? Right. How can we really change this to be healthy, to support people's mental health and well-being? So I experience a lot of doubt because it feels like it's like climbing Everest in a way when we yes. look at the current reality of the work world. But ultimately, I think what we're living in, the reality of the moment is that there is a lot of culture change taking place and there's an opening to really make a dent. And I do my best every day, but you know, <laughs> I, 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 I'm one person, I'm a human being and just knowing that there are thousands and tens of thousands of people out there that are trying to build healthy and caring work environments is, is what keeps me going. There's a lot of really senior leaders who listen to this show. So, uh oh, <laughs> no, this is what would you, what what do they need to know about the mental health of their hourly workers? Well, first, come into the store. Number one, hmm. there's a huge disconnect between senior leaders and what's happening in the store. It may have been decades since they've been in the store. I think the biggest thing is to engage workers in workplace decisions, which is tough, but necessary because almost every shift decisions were made about my work environment, working in the grocery store without ever asking me or any of my coworkers. Huh. That was mask mandates or when we take masks off or when we put them on outside of when it was mandated, when glass walls went up or when anything operational in the store changed, not once, hundreds and thousands of decisions, not once did anyone ever ask me huh. how it would impact me or my coworkers. And ultimately, we know best because we're in the store mm -hmm. and we know what's going on. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening. Bye.